joy is an innate right. We had joy when we were born. We have joy now. No one can take it away or give it to us, actually. Only we can rekindle and ignite that. If anything in this conversation inspired or ignited you to feel angry, frustrated, or excited, then something is moving in you and to follow that. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 560 with guest, then meet Sethi. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm doing something I've never done for the first time, and I really hope that you join me live. On November 15th, 2023, if you're listening to this in the future, sorry, it's already passed. Uh, But on November 15th this year, I am going to go live on TikTok, 6 p.m. Eastern time. So that's three Pacific. It's kind of late if you're in Europe or somewhere that far east of me. But November 15th, 6 p.m. Eastern time, I'm going live on TikTok and I'm going to be answering your questions. It's a little bit of a Q&A slash AMA type of thing. You might know now that one of my biggest fears is like throwing a party and nobody comes. So please try to join me. (laughs) My inner child thanks you. No, but I think it'll be fun. Obviously, it's not my first time going live, but I've never gone live on TikTok, and and I know a lot of people do. If you are a TikTok person, there's like people dressed up as gorillas playing the saxophone. There are DJs. I, I see a lot of DJs, which I love. There are people that do like co-working where they're just like studying and and people go on there. And I don't know if they study with them. There's people that do debates, political Anything you could think of, really, people sell wigs and makeup and just TikTok live is wild. It's so different than going live on Facebook or Instagram. So if you're not, if you don't have TikTok, it's so fun. It's way more than teenagers dancing. There's that too, but I assume you'll probably be on the same side of TikTok that I'm on. And I met Hey Andrea Owen there. I met Hey Andrea Owen on all the social channels that you can follow me there. I have a really great time on TikTok. I love to entertain and mix it with personal development. So November 15th, 6 p.m., Eastern time. Uh, and if, if you follow me there, you can get the notification or you click the thing to be notified when I do go live. But I, w- I would love to see your face and be able to to say hello. Actually, I won't actually see your face. I'll see your name. Uh, but yeah, please. Thank you. It'll be fun. And if you have questions, two of the easiest ways to get them over to me are shoot us an email, support at andreaowen.com, or shoot me a DM on Instagram. And I'll be sure to grab it and answer it and give you a shout out over there on TikTok Live. All right. Thank you so much. I really hope to see you there. I am excited to bring you today's guest, partly because, well, well, you'll hear. You'll hear why I'm 
excited about this. You'll hear it in her bio and you'll hear us talk about it. So I'm not going to give it away. All right. Our guest today is Thanmeet Sethi. She is a board certified integrative family medicine physician and clinical associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She has spent the last 25 years working on the front lines of the most marginalized communities, as well as globally with victims of school shootings, survivors of hurricanes, citizens impacted by police violence, and psychologists in Ukraine under attack. Thanmeet has created entire integrative medicine programs from the ground up, and her expertise is widely recognized in both local and national work. She continues to teach in academic medicine, conducts clinical research on psilocybin, and has been an integrative and psychedelic medicine practice in Seattle, where she lives with her family. Her first book, Joy is My Justice, was published in May 2023. So without further ado, here is Thanmeet. Thanmeet, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it, Andrea. I mean, I love it when any therapist comes on. (laughs) I like it when people can come on and talk about a lot of the same topics that I talk about all the time, but just from sometimes a different perspective. And I, I can't tell you how many times people have told me, I've heard this so many times and it just took that one person or that one way of saying it to really sink in. So I'm I'm really delighted to have you come on and and share your expertise. Like I, I would love to start with the basics of of a lot of what you talk about, and that is around joy. And what do you find the difference is between, or is there a difference between joy and what is happiness? Mm, that's a lovely place to start. There's a lot there. First of all, I want to say uh, I would consider it an honor that you call me a therapist. I wouldn't say I'm a therapist. I'm a physician who's done a lot of therapeutic work, but I have so much respect for therapists. And I think that our work overlaps Mm -hmm. in very powerful ways. Yes. Props out there to all the therapists. I'm going to go back to a point that will describe the joy-happiness divide. I was pregnant with my third child really on top of the world and got really devastating news about my second who was barely three that he had a ALS-like disease in Mm. children. So he was going to have a degenerative disease that took his ability to walk, run, breathe, and live. And it was a moment of real reckoning. It was a moment of wondering how the hell could I be joyful again? And it was really this moment also for me as a a justice activist in this world through my work and off my work to wonder how could I get justice? There was no way to fight back. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I learned that if I fought for my own joy, I would feel the deepest justice possible. And that is liberation in my body. And it was then at the beginning of that journey that I understood, not then, but in that journey. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. In that first moment, I understood <laughs> nothing. Right. But it was that journey that taught me that there is a real difference between joy and happiness. And there is overlap, but happiness is a cognitive construct. It's an evaluative experience. Are things going well? Mm-hmm. Did I get pregnant? Did I get the job I wanted? Did I meet the right person? Did this work out for me? It's not bad. It's beautiful. I'll mm-hmm. take happiness any yeah, day. Yeah, we all want that. Yeah, and I think we all deserve it. And at the same time, there are moments and longer than moments in some of our lives that the constructs are not ever going to be happy. 
whether it's a severe tragedy like this, or whether it's oppression ongoing, or living in uh, poverty, working two jobs, feeling like you're struggling all the time, or internal self-doubt and self-hate. I mean, there are just so many ways to suffer. And in those moments and those days and years, it's not happy. And so then where do we fall in terms of wanting to feel better? And that's where joy comes in because joy is actually very different. It's a deeply embodied experience and joy comes from the same deep well as our pain, Mm -hmm. from that capacity for meaning, love, and connection. And so there are ways to access joy as our birthright, whether we, no matter what we are going through. And so joy is an accessible right that we all deserve to understand. And it is a way to not feel broken because if we feel that we can't be happy, we often feel that we're not good enough at getting better. Mm -hmm. I love that explanation. And when you were describing it, like it made me think of like joy comes from your guts. Like it comes from the deepest parts of your body and soul and heart and spirit. There's a difference. There's a difference. It's the reason that you can be, and I'll just speak for myself. I can be crying. Um, many days I cried and I'm fine with that, but I can be crying in grief that my son is coming to the end. And at the same time, someone can reach out to me and give me love and support. And I can feel a moment of connection and being held in the world that I'm not alone. That gives me joy. That gives me the capacity to understand that there is more to this story, that the narrow lens of suffering and tragedy is not all of who I am or what this life is. And so there are ways that we can understand. You know, I think the best example I give to myself and to others is you can be at a funeral for someone you love and be deeply sad and grieving. And in the next millisecond or same millisecond as you are crying, someone can remind you of a way that that person just made you laugh or irritated the hell out of you. And all of you can have a moment of love and connection and laughter in that moment of sorrow. There is a way that the two do a beautiful dance together. And I really believe this from 25 years of taking care of people with severe mental health uh, conditions from my own journey, from working globally in trauma. I mean, I've sort of been through it all. I really believe that if we numb ourselves to the pain completely, it is why we cannot open to the joy. And so there is a way that that mingling of understanding that this pain is here, acknowledging it and then being able to open to a wider continuum. Yes. Oh, this is like talking about emotions on a a somewhat spiritual level. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So incredibly, I, I, I don't mean to sound trite, but it's so incredibly deep and I, and I just appreciate it so much. Why is it such a critical practice for someone who, especially someone who is going through maybe the loss of a loved one, or I'm currently traveling my way through a, a pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? A divorce that is acrimonious. Just, you know, I'll just say it, it's volatile. And so in someone who's in a situation like that, where it's, there's a lot of the, um, the more challenging emotions around it. Why is it so critical to also practice joy? 
Yeah. So here's the thing is that any loss, grief, emotions that we're managing, navigating, what we're fundamentally feeling at the core of it is a loss of power mm-hmm. and hope and our humanity. Yeah. That we've been stripped down to a place of feeling, you know, in our words, we, we might say some days, what is this and why is it worth it? You know, mm-hmm. how long is this going to go on and how, why even live this way? I'm yeah. not saying you're suicidal if you feel that way. I really mean it that you can get existential about it, right? Oh, yeah. And, and it feels like it will never end. Never. Yeah. And and sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't always end. And yet the way to reclaim power in our body and reclaim our humanity is to extend that continuum into the wider continuum to include joy. Mm-hmm. It's imperative, actually, that we reclaim that safety and power in our body. Here's the thing is that if you've been through any trauma, or I love your example of the divorce, not that we need to perseverate <laughs> on it, but you can you I, can use me as an example. It's fine. You're living it, right? Right. And I'm yeah. sure you're thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of living in you all the time. When we are in those kinds of situations, we actually feel a sense in our brain. There's actually science around this. I speak of this in my book. It's that there's science that put us in our threat centers Mm -hmm. because it's a threat to feel this way. And it's a threat to be vigilant all day about this experience, whatever that may be. And so in our brain, we're actually living as if something is right there about to hurt us. Mm -hmm. And when we're in that state, it's actually a state of in our body not feeling safe, right? That can make sense. What I keep saying is I, I feel like my nervous system is just fried. Exactly. And so when you do these core practices that I speak of around understanding how they reclaim safety and power in your body, how they regulate your nervous system, we understand that what you're doing is actually in many deep ways, physiologically, as well as energetically and spiritually, you're telling yourself, I am okay. Mm -hmm. I am safe in this moment. Even though the world may not feel safe, often it is not safe. Even though I do not feel good, quote unquote, I am okay right now. And in that moment, when we do that, we actually move ourselves out of threat centers into areas of our brain where we actually can make change for ourselves, where we can actually have executive function to understand what we need, Mm -hmm. whether that's a decision to make or whether that's asking for help from someone. I don't know if you've ever been, I mean, I'm going to assume since you're human, you've been in a situation where you're just so distressed that actually if someone says, I'm here to help you, what do you want? You almost can't tell them. You can't. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've been in that place lately where, and I've I've articulated this to my friends where I, where I've said I feel like I am like Jane Goodall, like gorillas in the mist, like with a you know a clipboard in the corner, like watching my own life because I cannot I cannot distinguish what is happening, <laughs> and I can't even in some moments. I mean, these are not not super often, but like I cannot even make a decision about what to eat or anything like that. It's like something has gone offline. Exactly. And and the truth is, 
it's not only imperative we all practice these tools to reclaim that executive function and be able to care and tend to ourselves. It's actually our birthright to Mm -hmm. feel like a full human again, to understand that it's not about if I get through this, maybe one day the destination will be joy. It's actually that joy is what carries us through the hard. It's actually how we balance and hold everything. And once I understood for myself and my patients that joy was not a destination or a goal, that joy was actually not an answer, it was a way to hold the questions, it was then that I understood that there was something more at play here. Mm -hmm. And now, um, as I speak about in the book, what I understand is it's not just the stories I tell of the people I've worked with all over the world. It's the science behind it that has not been often translated in a way that we can understand it to be reclaiming power and safety. And often, in my opinion, it's presented as toxic positivity. Uh Uh, Love yourself. Just be grateful. Just think happy thoughts. Positive vibes only. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that's actually more harmful. And so my, my, the distinguishing of joy is that it's not a substitute for pain. It's actually a way to open up to and hold the pain. Now, this can all sound really vague and abstract if you're Mm -hmm. listening, like, uh uh-huh, and how the hell do I do that? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. You sound good, but that's not (laughs) working. Like, I'm not sure how that works. And what I will tell you is that um, I'll take something, I'll just take a simple example, not easy, but simple, which is something like gratitude, for instance, which I think is tossed around in a way that's actually harmful to be honest. You know, I mean, be grateful for that you don't have this, even though your life sucks. Oh, the whole, it could be worse. The amount of times people have said to me, at least you have two other healthy children. You know, it can make you almost want to be violent, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It comes from a good place, but it's really, it doesn't land safely. And so actually gratitude is not about positive vibes only and toxic positivity. It's about turning back to your life instead of away. It's about finding the core goodness in yourself. And I will I will say that's the most important and the world, but in yourself when something has stripped it away from you. It is a how we actually can come out of an experience or be in an experience and find the ways that we are I mean, to put it simply, badasses, that we're still here getting up every day, Mm -hmm. you know, that we are actually living this life. They've done studies to show how after 9-11, how we can use a tool called gratitude recasting to actually show ourselves the deepest core strengths of ourselves after an experience like that. I've used it at Marjorie Stoneman after gun, you know, after horrible shooting with teachers there when I work there. I've used it myself. And I will tell you right now for anyone listening, I have a whole TED talk about this mm-hmm. because someone actually, my mentor told me to be thankful for this pain. And I'll, I'll be honest. I say it in the book too. I wanted to hurt her. Oh, yeah. You I know, I sort of that. was thought like, are you out of your mind? You know, what mother's supposed to be thankful for this? And it sounded like that good vibes only kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
until I really practiced it in the way that she meant it and the way I talk about in the book that it's actually a way to reclaim power and reclaim goodness. It's not a way to thank away the real stuff. Mm -hmm. So the book is Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. And we'll put the link to the book and the TED Talk in the in the show notes. And I want to ask you about marginalized communities and and because you talk about that as, you know, for them to experience joy and practice joy as a way to heal from their oppression. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I would say it's the deepest example of how uh, a trauma can strip us of our humanity. I mean, the way that systems of power stay in power Mm -hmm. is by stripping us of that ability, that capacity to think that we can be bigger than this story. Mm -hmm. And so every time we can reclaim a wider sense of who we are through a practice of joy, we actually are reclaiming our power in our body and collectively can work better at in many ways, not only because we feel more powerful, but like I said, we have more executive function. We actually understand what to do next for ourselves and maybe as a collective. So actually the major thing I would say is that if you are undergoing a fight, I mean, I don't even want to get on a soapbox about this world right now. But Uh if you are fighting for the right to be in your skin, in your body, in the way you love, in the way you, um, you you are, which is the vast majority of us now, I would say that reclaiming joy is a way to reclaim power and fight back. It's actually a deep revolution in our bodies. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. With Shopify POS, you can accept credit cards, mobile payments, and every other major payment method, all with low fees and transparent pricing starting on day one. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com noise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com noise to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com noise. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? I mean, that's what this show is all about, right? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you can do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel has over 16 million subscribers sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Their courses are so convenient and have helped me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's so easy to learn how to order food. That's where I get the most excited to use it at Mexican restaurants or ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while on vacation, etc. 
Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash noise. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash noise, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash noise. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh my gosh, I love this conversation. Oh, because we hear a lot like on social media and it's it's become a little bit of a joke, I think, especially for uh, the millennial generation. I'm a Gen Xer, but like millennials were young when 9-11 happened, when the economic crash of 08 happened. And it's sort of like they've been like living this existential crisis one after another. It just makes me think of, of that. But now it just, and it's just sort of been passed down to to Gen Z, who you know, who are, who are my children. Um, I I want to ask you about because one of the things I'm personally fascinated with is, like I mentioned, you know, our, how our nervous system works, and particularly the vagus nerve. And so I know you talk about this in your in your book, and you know, and and how how cultivating joy can can help that. So can you make that connection? So the vagus nerve, for anyone who doesn't know, is the longest nerve in our body. Mm -hmm. It goes from the base of our brain, through our thorax, our chest, down through our abdomen, innervating the deepest, deepest structures of our body. It's kind of the motherboard, isn't it? It really is, right? Right. And it is what people don't understand is most people know that it's the main nerve to activate what's called the parasympathetic or relaxation nervous system. So yes, it's a potent way to relax and gain calm. That's for sure. What people often don't know is that there are different branches of the vagus nerve and there's what's called a ventral, which is the front, meaning front and dorsal back vagus, and they have different functions. The dorsal vagus is actually what puts us in freeze and withdrawal. It actually really shuts us down in moments of trauma or times when we need to kind of dissociate. Yeah. The ventral vagus is our front I like to think of it as our front facing kind of uh, way to be. It's our, it's our branch that really brings us connection, safety, love. When it gets activated, it actually makes us feel like it's okay to step out again into ourselves or into the world. It's what I think of as making us comfortable in our body and our skin. And so the vagus nerve is so much more important than people understand. It's not only a way to calm down, it's a way to actually feel that you can boldly step into this world again after it has betrayed you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's why I say that self-compassion is a bold act of justice. It's not just uh, this, it's gotten bad PR. It's not this woo thing of like, love yourself and all will be okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually a deep, deep act of our nervous system to say, you're okay right now, and we can do this again. Yeah. And when we do not activate, and we activate all those um, actions of self-compassion through our vagus nerve, it's one of the tools I talk about for joy. And when in the opposite, if we're in a self-critical, self-berating mode, mm-hmm. which let's face it, most of us are most of the time, even I practice self-compassion every day because I hear myself berating <laughs> myself every day, right? right? And um, I mean, some days, you know, Andrew, some days I'm like, how much more can I take? I mean, you know, like, <laughs> how much work have I done? But it's not about extinguishing it. 
It's about coming to a new relationship with it. It's about understanding that it's really just my mind trying to protect me, Mm -hmm. but I need to go deeper into my body to get protection and safety. That that's actually a more bold justice than what my mind is trying to do. And so if you're in a self-berating mode, if you have a teenager or you've been in a teenager, you know that if someone tells you, don't do something, how could you do this and berate you, you're more apt to do it. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's it's pure neuroscience. It puts us in our threat center. When we're in our threat center, we reach for survival. Our survival is often the exact same things we're trying not to do. They're related to food, sex, escape, comfort, whether that be drugs, TV, your phone, you know, I could go on and on. Right. And so when we practice these tools that activate at a deep, deep core level, our vagus nerve, we are actually not only bringing more joy into our body, we are regulating our system to understand how to receive joy and how to be more human again. Mm, I love, I love that explanation. I really love the explanation around, you know, being self-critical happens in our mind and the self-compassion is an embodiment and that, you know, obviously the way to combat self-criticism is is to practice self-compassion, which is something I talk about all the time. So I love that, that distinction. One of the other topics I love is about epigenetics and ancestry. And so can you talk about how, how healing our trauma and finding joy affects our genes? We know now from epigenetics that there's forward remnants of trauma is how I would put it. When ancestors have gone through traumatic experiences, Rachel Yehuda has done some of the most groundbreaking research, I think, on this, looking at families who have been through the Holocaust Mm -hmm. and really looking at how it's not just the talking about the Holocaust, it's the actual sort of epigenetic markers on the DNA that get passed down that almost you could think as a way of embodying the trauma like that it lives on. I think of it in ways for myself, my own ancestral experiences that both my families fled uh, during the partition of India and saw immense suffering. And I think about that sometimes because I'm quite hypervigilant in the world. I mean, not only from managing anxiety and self-berating, but because I, I think it might be in my genes, honestly. But we've seen that through Rachel Yehuda's work and others have replicated it as well. I think many people might have read Bessel van der Kolk, van der Kolk's um, Body Keeps a Score, which mm-hmm. is a, a tome on this that really taught us that trauma lives in the body, that we actually you know, have embodied this fear and this loss. And so there are ways that actually when we practice different ways of moving our body, of feeling into our body, we actually create epigenetic changes in our DNA. And we've also seen this through ways, you know, my food is not based on nutrition, but I would just add that there have been studies now that show that the way we eat changes the epigenetic markers too. So we have some agency, some power to say, this is what happened, but I can also make a bigger story about this now. I can make these changes in my DNA. It's powerful and inspiring to know we can do that, right? 
I also, I talk about this in the book. I don't have randomized control trials to prove this and um, there's no way to do one. You know, I do a lot of ancestral work in my practice as well as in my personal life. I actually think we may heal backwards as well. But, you know, that might be a little hard for people to comprehend. I explain (laughs) that in my book, but through a story of my own son and my aunt's son who actually died early of unknown reasons in India, but he was disabled as well and and seemed to have something similar. Nobody really knows. Really through this healing around my son, I feel like my core nuclear family and my father and my siblings have done some healing around that trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are ways that the way we live out now may actually be healing backwards. But, you know, that's my own theory. But what I would say is the science really supports the forward changes. The forward changes. I I mean, and I love talking about the backwards changes, albeit a little esoteric, but still fascinating. I don't know if you talk about this in, in your book at all, but you offer ketamine assisted psychotherapy and that's selfishly the I'm pivoting my career PS haven't told my audience that yet to go into that and it's it's fascinated me for forever and and side note as someone in recovery I've always kind of just pushed it to the side and just been like well I, I find it incredibly interesting maybe it's something I will I will try, you know, as a as a treatment for myself, but I'm in recovery, so I shouldn't touch it. But now I know there's a lot of people coming out who are in recovery and because let's face it, all of us in recovery have experienced trauma. <laughs> Just like every every human, but I think it's so important for for more people who have, you know, over a decade of of recovery like myself to to get into it to be therapists in that realm. But that aside, can you talk about how you know whether you want to talk about how you incorporate it into your your practice or or how it how it touches on anything that you've already talked about in our conversation just the floor is yours around how you want to tell us about it it's not in my book uh on purpose because it would have been too long a book next book <laughs> yeah that's what my editor keeps saying <laughs> it's the overlap is real. And what I, and what I mean is that, you know, all well, before my- Before we, I'm going to stop you for a second. I, I should apologize to the audience. For those people that don't know what ketamine is, it's a, can you, can you describe it? Yeah, let, I'll do that too. Okay. Um, I would say that um, my work is really around catalyzing joy for people. Mm-hmm. You know, you might think of myself as a joy catalyst for myself and others. And I think psychedelics play into that as well. They're not a cure-all. I'm going to explain how they work, but they are a way to gain insight and shift perspective and reach a deeper level of your consciousness that may know what you need and may know how to catalyze that joy and may give you the energy to do that. Right. So I, that's how I would say the overlap is, is real. I actually, um, so I practice with psilocybin in research. I'm a primary researcher with psilocybin at the University of Washington. We just finished up, a um, the clinical part of a trial on, co- on burnout in frontline docs and nurses after COVID with oh psilocybin. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's really so powerful. And we're working towards, I, I would say, do not, yes, for sure, those in recovery, um, our next study is going to be with alcoholism. So yeah. psilocybin and MDMA are not legal yet, but mm-hmm. they I hopefully will be really could be soon. And ketamine is I had poo-pooed ketamine as like a placeholder until the real psychedelics, because ketamine is not a, a traditional psychedelic. Mm-hmm. It's a dissociative medicine. But Isn't it used in anesthesia? Yes, okay. we use it in the operating room all the time. Mm-hmm. It 
actually, I had, like I said, dismissed it and wrote it off as maybe a placeholder, but I don't think I'll ever stop working with it. It's quite potent. So the way, you know, we don't really, honestly, I'm going to, I don't want us at all to think we're on some high horse. I don't think we understand how any of these truly work, really. But they do, we do understand some of the psychopharmacology around the receptors, mm-hmm. um, for instance. And we understand things like with ketamine, which really can activate what's called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a potent, potent neurochemical that we make in our bodies uh, for neuroplasticity, for that, as we say, rewiring of our brain. And actually, um, we can create that through meditation, through exercise, through um, turmeric, but, uh, you know, it's very potently created um, with many of these medicines, including ketamine. Ketamine also gives us a way of dissociating from our body, which may sound scary. That is part of the what feels like the hallucinogenic um, aspect of it. But it gives us a, a way to separate from our trauma and look at it with less reactivity that, as you know, or any listener knows, if we think about something that's hard for us or traumatic, we can start to feel chest pain or in our body so uncomfortable that we stop doing it with ketamine and these others. But uh, ketamine is what I'm working with clinically right now with real people, not research. I mean, research is real people, but you know, <laughs> you get that experience of of looking at something from a shifted perspective. And so it is potent. And I don't think I'll stop because I have seen the potency, but also because Ketamine may be somewhat more sustainable for people. It's it's a couple of hours a session versus a six to eight hour session, which yeah. when I do a psilocybin session with someone, you know, it's it's I'm there from eight to four and people mm-hmm. are there from I mean, that's not very sustainable for everyone. I do think so far the research is showing us that maybe psilocybin is more durable than ketamine. And so you'd have to do it less often. So there's all these ways that we're sifting it out. But what I would say is those things aren't as important for people. What's more important to understand is that these medicines are not new. They have Uh been used for centuries by indigenous communities, and Uh we're finally understanding it and reclaiming it after oppressive decades of them being suppressed by a racist government and by brain propaganda, right? You know, I grew up in the fried egg on your brain is a fried egg Mm -hmm. on drugs. And I myself had to re-unlearn and relearn that conditioning because I thought, you know, dropping acid would ruin my brain and I wanted to be um, a high functioning person. It's all BS, but it worked because people still feel that and they feel scared. So uh, what I'm doing in practice is really um, trying to honor with reciprocity, even ketamine, which is a synthetic medicine, although it's been found in nature on fungus as well, but it's a synthetic medication um, medicine but still, that way of working with altered trance state work is an, a deep indigenous wise tradition that has been handed down to us. And so in my practice, I'm really working with these medicines to honor that sacred aspect, only doing them in conjunction with good preparation and good integration, only doing them one-on-one. I don't have like a line of, I'm not, I'm not judging how people do this. It's a business. And so people have to get a lot of people through, but it's not my way. It's not my way of understanding how to work with the medicine. 
And I'm not doing IV ketamine. Many clinics are IV. I'm doing only oral and intramuscular. It works just as well if anyone out there is interested in it. For me, it feels like you're tethered to a cord and that doesn't feel like the ancient way of practicing with this medicine. Mm -hmm. It also feels to me, and so this is just my bias, but many of us share this. It feels like it's pathologizing, also medicalizing the experience when actually what I'm trying to do is um, show people how to harness their inner wisdom and inner healing, um, that these medicines allow us to reflect that back to us. In those settings, I am a therapist. I'm a psychedelic therapist. I am really guiding their, facilitating their journey and really reflecting back and allowing them to find what they need. Mm -hmm. It's a potent way to catalyze joy. I will say that. And I personally have used these medicines to understand myself and my life in a, in a deeper way. And, and I would say they're a spiritual practice. Honestly, there's no medical ICD 10 code for spiritual practice yet. One day that's, I don't know if we need a code. I don't need that, but we do need codes to get these things approved and get access. Sure. I'm so excited to where, to see where the science is going and how this can help people. I, I know someone who, I know two people who have who have done ketamine therapy. And one of the the people told me that she went to try and heal some sexual abuse that had happened to her as a child that had been affecting her negatively for decades. And she went through the whole therapy, you know, with integration and, and worked with a therapist around it. And she said the result was that and she said, it's not like I forgot that it happened. It's not like a brainwashing where, you know, like it erases the memories or anything like that. She said, I still remember what happened and the story, you know, is still in my mind, but the 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 heavy charge is gone. And she said, because this person was a family member, and she said, I, I now can even be in the room with this person and wow. I don't feel fear. I don't feel anger and resentment. And like I want to throttle this person. You know, my my inner child has calmed down and and that to me is a miracle. Like that is a miracle. That I don't know if you could describe a deeper healing. You know, that is beautiful. I am so glad that you explained how she did that with integration, because what I will say is there's a lot of psychedelic work happening that is not optimized because there's no good integration. And right. people are actually sometimes more traumatized by the experience, because mm -hmm. if you're left with that trauma without any true guidance. Good luck um, with life. <laughs> yeah. I actually also offer psychedelic integration and preparation if people need it for people who are doing psychedelic medicine that they don't feel is being done in the way they hope that it would, or especially, I will tell you, for um, communities of color, it is very hard for us to get therapists who would not bypass any racialized trauma that arises in an experience. There's so many ways that this work needs to be done better and with more intention. And this is not a pivot you need to explain now, but I'm super excited that you're pivoting. I can't wait to hear more about that. We'll take an ad break and, and we'll be right back with more questions. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling low energy and sluggish and coffee just wasn't giving me what I needed. Especially in these winter months, I struggle with pep in my step. And since drinking AG1, I felt more energized and focused. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. Because aging is a part of life that we all have to deal with, but I don't think it should prevent me from doing the things I love like going on long hikes with my dog. 
I want to do the things that matter to me for as long as possible, which is why I drink AG1 every morning to support my brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm laying the groundwork for long-term health. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to have them as a long-term partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com noise. That's drinkag1.com noise. Check it out. Bills and other things to pay for don't just come bi-weekly, and neither should your paycheck. The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for unexpected doctor visits, vet bills, or even extra self-help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in noise under podcast when you sign up. It's really helpful to the show. Noise under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Okay. Uh, sort of speaking of pivoting, I want to I want to go back and talk a little bit more about about joy and what is. Can you talk to us about what is? Maybe you already talked about this a little bit and just didn't say this term, but you you talk about embodied micro resistance. What is that? There's there's work on this which I didn't realize that it had a name until I found the science around it. But what I mean by embodied micro resistances are ways that there are microaggressions done every day. You know, whether you're sure. um, a community from a community of color, LGBTQ, whether you're a woman, uh, mm-hmm. anything but a cis white man. Right. <laughs> there are microaggressions every day. And the idea is if we can heal and find ways to embody that resistance in our bodies, as I said, embodied, we actually can practice these embodied micro resistances and find a way to reclaim power. So I'll give you an example. I actually cited work from uh, maybe you've people have heard Amy Cuddy's um, yeah. power pose TED mm-hmm. talk. It's quite popular. I actually think that a power pose is an embodied micro resistance. So what I'm saying is that when we actually do something, some work in our body, whether that be a, a power pose, whether that be self compassion, whether that be yoga, tai chi, however we work deeply in our body. When we do that, 
we actually activate neurochemicals, cascades of neurochemicals that make us feel more connected, more caring for ourselves and others. We find a way to boldly step back into the world. And I cite Amy Cuddy's work as a real true example of how you can do that in a very maybe not easy to remember or feel that you can do it well every day, but a simple way. You know, this idea of saying, I feel nervous to go in that room. I'm going to stand in my power for a moment and actually give myself back that. And the other way that I explain it is actually a question that I asked myself at the moment of this tragedy, which is that when we found out that my son had this fatal illness, uh, my husband and I, as you can imagine, were sort of sunken into our bodies and our hearts on a bench outside our house, just thinking the world had just crashed down on us. Mm -hmm. We went into the in inevitable why me why me? Why us? Why Zubin? Zubin's my son. And why? Why? It's a normal question. It's reasonable. In some moment of, <laughs> we debate in a loving way, who said it first all the time now, because it's become our question for us, is one of us said, why not us? Why not me? And it wasn't that that meant like, yeah, why not us to suffer? What it was, was just a moment of embodied micro resistance. You can imagine it set us off on this trajectory of joy because what we realized was when we say, why me? I mean, just if you in your head say that, you feel hunched, crouched mm -hmm. over, victim pose. Victimized. When I say, why not me? My chest goes out. I stand firm. I say, why not me? I'm in a more receiving pose. There is a way that that in of itself is an embodied micro resistance to this tragedy. I'm saying not only why not me, because I am human and we all suffer. What makes me so different? Is there actually a reason that people suffer? No, that's ludicrous. We don't suffer because we're bad or we did something wrong. Right, or we manifested Maybe people it. believe that. Yeah, I don't believe that. Mm -mm. I also think, why not me to also embody joy with this deep grief? Why not me to understand that my life is perfect, not despite my son, but because of my son, that he has taught me to live in a different way, to live chest outstanding proud. And so these kind of questions we ask ourselves, these tools of self-compassion, these power poses, they're embodied micro-resistances as Ray, I will give credit, Ray Johnson gave me that term, um, who's a researcher who did this work, and I cite that in the book, is gave me this way of understanding that what I was doing in that moment was far bigger than asking a different question. It was giving my body a different way to answer this story. Oh, my my gosh. Okay. I could ask you like 10 more questions, but I want to <laughs> value your time. And is there, before we end, is there anything that you want to circle back to that you want to make sure that you underscore or just repeat in order to feel complete? What I would say to anyone listening is that if this sounds too big, it's time to take up bigger space. If this sounds too hard, it's time to understand that you have more capacity than you think. And if this sounds like it's too much, then maybe you haven't allowed yourself to know that you deserve more. And that joy is an innate right. We had joy when we were born. 
we have joy now. No one can take it away or give it to us, actually. Only we can rekindle and ignite that. And I would just say that if anything in this conversation inspired or ignited you to feel angry, frustrated, or excited, then something is moving in you. And to follow that and know that you have the capacity. I'm no special person. You're not special. You know, none of us are superheroes. We're just humans who decided to step out and try this damn thing again. I love that. Oh, put that on a bumper sticker. Thank you so much. And the, the, the book again is Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. Is there anywhere specifically that you want people to go to learn more about you? Yeah. If they go to my website, actually, you can um, buy my book, get bonuses there as well. And you can do, I also have a quiz to give people sort of an intro. It's called Unlock Your Joy Code. And you can really, in just a few minutes, understand what maybe which tool is yours to really start with and really give yourself that igniting of this path. I'm also very active on Instagram and love mm-hmm. to hear from people. If people want to give us their takeaways, I love to hear. I love the conversation that goes goes on from the conversation. Yeah, me too. I think that's where I found you was on Instagram. So thank you so much. I And, and we all love a good quiz, everybody. So thank you everyone <laughs> listening for, for choosing to spend your time with me. I'm so incredibly grateful for that time. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I would be so incredibly grateful if you haven't done so already, if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Super easy if you already listen to your shows over there. Um, But if you don't, or maybe you have the app on your phone, but you listen to the show on a different app, if you could leave a review for this show, it matters so much. I wish I could express how much it matters. I also wish that it didn't matter so much, but alas, it does. So if you haven't already, please go review and rate the show. It would mean so much to me. And thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing day. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.